It's 12 Enough, Season 12, Episode 1B, The Deep Conversation, with your host, Jonathan Malone, and guest host, Curtis Freeman. Twelve Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Curtis Freeman is the research professor of theology and the director of the Baptist House of Studies at Duke University Divinity School. This podcast is brought to you by The Thoughtlessness of Rene Descartes. You want to cease existing? Then just be thoughtless. And by elephants. They're big. They're kind of amazing. Elephants! Yay! And we're back. All right, we're going to now get the deep conversation. Deep, deep. Uh, the deep conversation I had with Curtis Freeman. Uh, Curtis is uh, just a fantastic scholar and individual because there are people that are fantastic scholars but not fantastic individuals. And there are people that are fantastic individuals but not fantastic scholars. But Curtis, he gets it both. He does both of them. It's amazing. So he wrote this book called Contesting Catholicity, um, you know, Theology for Other Baptists. And uh, I read it. It was very good. I've read other books that aren't so good, but this one was, it was good. It was very good. And I reached out to him because I worked with Curtis on some other things. And I said, hey, you want to talk about your book? And he said, really? Sure. And so we did. And I recorded it. I told him I was going to record it beforehand. It wasn't creepy about it. Just relax. So here it is, the deep conversation I had with Curtis Freeman about doing history, Catholicity, Baptist theology, and all that fun stuff. Enjoy. I'm here with Curtis Freeman. Curtis is the research professor of theology and the director of the Baptist House of Studies at Duke Divinity School at Duke University. Is that right? That's right. Did Thanks, I get it? John. Okay, good. And um, and the Baptist House of Studies, have they ever competed with the um, the House of Pancakes just to see who uh, can that, make better that's breakfast? That's an interesting and, idea. Uh, we should have a Baptist House of Pancakes and have a merger. That would be, be right? I don't know if Baptists are known for pancakes. <laughs> of all my memory. It's more Episcopalian, so yeah. right? Yeah, they do Monday, they do uh, they do Fat Tuesday, right, or Show of Tuesday with the pancakes. Yeah. We just do casseroles. Yeah, from what I under I I grew up with as many different kinds of mac and cheese casseroles as I can yeah. remember <laughs> with every church gathering. Yeah, um, I don't know if there is a regionalism with Baptist casserole, Baptist potluck dinners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting study that someone it can would. do. It would. It would. Well, with your um, at the Baptist House of Studies, see if someone wants to do that that uh, research. 
Yeah, I've always thought, you know, I, I, this is this is a little ecumenically insensitive, but uh, well, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always thought, it, you know, that our free church tradition, Baptist part of that, mm-hmm. have always been a little iconoclastic. And if you think about Zwingli yeah. and sausage on uh, Good Friday, <laughs> that I thought that you know maybe we should have like a sausage Friday or something. <laughs> And we'll have it right in front of the Catholic Church. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Right, yeah. right. Just to... sure that would, that would enhance ecumenical relations <laughs> for generations. <laughs> we have to get serious because they're going to mistake. Now they're going to think the title of my book is yeah. actually as uh, yeah. uh, some of saying is like I'm actually trying to fight, pick a fight with the right. Catholic. Right, and we're going to get to that because that is okay. so. All we're right. going to so you wrote a book and and. and um, loyal listeners know that one of the ways to get on the podcast is to write a book. You write a book, and I read it, and you get on the podcast. And you've written a number of books, so it's, this isn't. Um, but the one that I, I read, and I know I'm a little behind in your book writing, is Contesting Catholicity, Theology for Other Baptists. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll tell you, when I was, I was, I was reading it one day, um, I was at an orchestra concert, and I wasn't playing for the first half, so I'm sitting in the green room mm-hmm. reading your book. Uh, and um, one of the other musicians saw that and said, you know, now, caveat, Rhode Island, full of Catholics. Catholics, right. <laughs> You're right. 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 <laughs> it's like, so what's wrong with Catholicity? <laughs> right. <laughs> what's exactly. wrong with being Catholic? And I, I had to like, no, no, that's not, it's not about that. It's, yeah. it's actually very pro-Catholic, kind right. of. But I mean, so you, you put me in a tough spot. Right, right. Well, the the uh, the title is sort of provocative, and it has multiple meanings, and so maybe we can unpack that. Um, why don't we do that now, and then I'll ask the bigger methodological questions. Okay. Yeah, so why'd you pick that title? Well, that's an interesting thing. Is that um, so? Uh, what I what I the, the thesis of the of the book is that uh, whatever Catholicity is, and this is mm-hmm. the sense of what all Christians share in common in, in terms of, uh, of like a common way of life, uh, right. even a common basic set of uh, doctrinal beliefs, right. uh, that, that that core, that sense of what Catholicity is that's shared is a, is a matter that's in contestation. And so there are uh, some forms mm. of uh, church that would say, well, these beliefs are Catholic beliefs, and in our past, it's often been that, like, therefore, we will we will hold you to believe these or else. Um, right. But I, well, the way I've tried to see the and to present the Baptist uh, vision as we as we came out of, in a sense, the Catholic or the Anglican Church, is that it that it wasn't so much a schism or a split right. or a separation as it was a, a contestation about what Catholicity was. And in particular, it was a contestation that the church should be made up of believers and that believers' baptism uh, is, is not just an, an act that we think that uh, everybody should have to go through. It's more of a sense of how can we ensure that uh, that the church would be more than just nominal uh, Christian right. people in name only, but right. people 
that actually had to answer a call to uh, to be a follower of Christ and then to submit uh, to what we might call disciple baptism. So the, the, the basic argument of the book, and this is sort of the last chapter right. of the book, uh, is that baptism is one of the key things for us. It's not just a Baptist distinctive, uh, like immersion right. versus and believer baptism and adult baptism versus infant baptism and sprinkling, you know, and just making it into a, a fight. But uh, but a way of saying, and this has, to me, been a really encouraging thing when I've seen uh, an example of after Vatican II that uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church has instituted an adult rite of, of Christian initiation. Right, and, yeah. and it's really fantastic. And what they are saying is exactly, I think, or precisely what the, the key— uh, uh, contest or, or conviction of the early Baptist movement was, and that is that that people in the church should truly be followers of Jesus, uh, and and that uh, that that's really what the adult right of uh, conversion is about, uh, the Catholic right. Uh, right. So uh, it's about catechesis, about discipleship. Uh, so that that's really trying to sort of shift the discussion about. Being Baptist is not holding to a set of distinctive beliefs that belong only to us, but it's a really a, a way of trying to shift the argument to say that that Baptist Christians are trying to say something about what the whole church should look like. What and and by that I mean the Church Catholic. So right. if that makes if that makes a kind of sense of that's really the title uh, uh, in a nutshell. So let me make sure I I, I got that right. I'm gonna, um, and so. You know, when Baptists were first emerging in in their own kind of way, mm-hmm. part of the emphasis, uh, part of the impetus of got that emergence was this idea that the church, um, so to speak, had gone astray, or people or aspects of the church had gone astray. So let's return to what is the true church, um, and so the Catholic, the C, is the universal. Let's try to reclaim the universal church with practices of Christianity that we would say are right. Uh, yeah. This is the mindset of those of the early Baptists, and that's coming out of the separatist and the Puritan right. movement. Rather than say, let's break away, and, and, and some of those held a, a, a more positive view about that the the uh, Church of England mm. could be reformed, it could be right. uh, you know purified. That was the Puritans, right. and there were some that were more radical that just said, no, we need to separate. Now, w- what I've tried to do is to is to have a piece of this book that in every chapter gives a kind of historical connection yeah. to all to show how there is a a, a kind of Catholic stream. Uh, in in our movement all the way through, um, some groups of Baptists have maintained that. I would say that you know your brand of Baptist, the American Baptist, right. my church is also American Baptist. Right. Uh, that I think there has been maybe a, a pretty strong stream within American Baptist that has had this ecumenical Catholic impulse. Um, some Baptist groups tend to be a little more separatist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't make this claim that all Baptists do have this, but uh, to say that certainly the other Baptists, as I call them, and that I would (laughs) hold them up as a kind of example, are these ones that want to try to to lead the whole church into what it would be to be faithful to the gospel. So, so it's a, um, what I'm hearing in part is a reversal of, you know, we are previous, and there are still Baptists that are like this, that to say, for Mm -hmm. us to really claim what God intended 
for Christianity. We need to shut ourselves off from the rest of Christianity because they've got it right. wrong. Right. And and you're saying and and then what I hear is this kind of reversal of saying instead for us to really embrace what God has intended means we need to be aware of what other kinds of Christians are doing and to see the ways in which God is speaking through those yeah. other aspects of Christianity. Right. And also to say that um that, you know, we need to pay attention to the forms of Christianity that have been here since the very beginning. Right. Uh, so forms of Orthodox Christianity, Catholic Christianity that have um, a, a stronger historical connection to the right. ancient church. I mean, our our claim to that is that, well, we can find it in the Bible, so therefore it must be yeah. authentically apostolic. <laughs> uh, and you yourself, you've been around a lot of Catholics. You were there yeah. in Rhode Island. Uh, you got your Ph.D. in a Catholic school. Yep. Uh, so you've, you, you've obviously been influenced by that as well. Um, I mean, I, kicking and screaming, let's be clear. Um, <laughs> so so I'm, I wonder, what, do you, you don't happen to know what your book sales are like with the landmark Baptist or the primitive Baptist. Is it sold I, I, a lot I with think, them? I think they would be pretty low. <laughs> pretty low. Shocking. Although, That's shocking. It, you know, you, you've got it. They do have to do some opposition research. Oh, so there, may be, there may be a stop. For, uh, for those who don't know, the landmarkist and um, and the primitive, they they really do claim to this idea of like you know after about you know after the Book of Acts, the church lost its way, and so we're going to reclaim that identity of who we are as Christians and everything correct. else is I mean, apostate. It, it, I always say I, this is a little bit of apocryphal because my grandmother didn't really say this, but sometimes I say that you know, as my grandmother used to say, who was a very staunch Baptist, that but Jesus was a Baptist because John the Baptist baptized Jesus, <laughs> so that it. makes Jesus a Baptist. <laughs> I love it. Well, yeah. and um, and I don't know if he tithed, and if he didn't, that makes him an American Baptist. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. He, you know, as I say, he may even be from Texas because Palestine is down in East Texas somewhere. Oh, there's a Palestine, uh, a Palestine East there Texas. There is. There is. Yeah. Jeez, oh, there's a Roman New York and family from there. So. Oh, okay, fantastic. So. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's probably not selling with them, except unless it's the right. his, you know they're doing their opposition research. But let's talk about that. That you, you made this wonderful statement about you know in history of, of Christianity, not just what's happening now, but in different strains or threads of Christianity. And this is a historical book, to a degree. Yeah, it's historical and theological. So yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So um, can you say I, 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 I'm intrigued by the method of doing um, theology with history? Yeah. And, um, can can you this, this broader sense of like of finding a theology and doing and doing history? Can you say can you say just a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I think theologians oftentimes um, one of the mistakes that we can make is that we can sort of construct ideas of what we think an ideal mm-hmm. version of of history should be, but we can't actually find it in practice anywhere, or mm-hmm. what an ideal sense of maybe the church should be, but we can't actually point to it. Right. And so what I've tried to do is to say that the kind of uh, vision that I've called this other Baptist vision that is uh, ecumenical, it's historically connected, uh, it is also, um, I, I, I describe it as little O orthodox, mm. um, yeah, I actually like the the phrase that uh, Hans Frey had that um, you know the Christianity and, and Hans Frey was actually 
came to America. His family was German, right. uh, raised in the Baptist tradition, went off to Yale but uh, and taught there for years. But he talked about a generous liberal orthodoxy. Right, and right. I really like that idea. Uh, his teacher, Robert Calhoun, kind of had that same idea uh, at Yale, that, that there's a sense of generosity, of openness right. to things that uh, come that are new, but also a rootedness in the tradition. And so what I what I tried to do was also in talking about this, uh, what I call the other Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, I say I'm, I was raised Southern Baptist, but now I'm Othern. Uh, so <laughs> I'm other Baptist. But to try to say that there is a connection, I can point to it. Mm-hmm. So people like Henry Jesse, for example, right. who was a very famous London pastor uh, that, um, you know, was one of the leaders of the Baptist movement, one of the influential people on congregationalism and Baptist life in America. Uh, right. John Bunyan, uh, a number of other, Daniel Turner, who people probably don't know. Uh, but these are people that had a deep sense of, of recognizing that to be a Baptist didn't mean to be a sectarian, to say that, mm-hmm. um, well, your choices are either to be a Methodist or to be a Presbyterian or to be a Baptist. But you couldn't say you could be a faithful Christian as a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist. And right. I think that this other Baptist vision is able to uh, to recognize that God is at work in other places besides our places. And I, I think that's a really important. And for me, being in, a, in an ecumenical divinity school— right. uh, Students that I teach are from all branches of the church. I, I do teach a lot of Baptists, but, you know, a lot of the students here, more of the students are Methodists than Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, Catholics. Right. Um, you know, if, if I don't have some sense of being able to recognize that those aren't just competitive branches uh, of something out there uh, and, and we're in competition with one another— um, if I can't understand that mm. the church and the very bran- various branches and denominations are um, are actually collaborators in God's mission in the world, then I think I'm really missing something. So that's right. that's a big part of what I've tried to give um, not only a theological vision, mm-hmm. but also be able to trace it historically and show the kinds of people, the kinds of churches, the kinds of places that had this, both, both in England where we started, but also in uh, North America. And so, I mean, so you started with this kind of this unease, not unease, but the sense of like my identity has shifted, uh, yeah. and and I want to be able to wrestle with that this new sense of what it means to be Baptist, to be Christian, especially like I said, an ecumenical environment. Right. Um, and and for you, then history has a a real um, authoritative weight in helping to shape identity. Is that a fair statement to make? Well. I, I think it can have an authoritative weight. Um, I guess it could also, it could be a, a bad example too. <laughs> you know, we can sometimes, you know, well, I was going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. So one of the stories that I do tell is, uh, uh, and it's a, it was a puzzle to me a little bit of how, because um, I, I think one of the anybody that studied church history knows that one of the, the the really big struggles of the early church was to come to an understanding of how. Um, how Christians could inherit mm. um, uh, not only the the Hebrew Bible, the the the, the Bible of the Jews, right, but also uh, the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they believe the God of Jesus Christ, right. And so, how could you say that that God is Lord, but that also Jesus is Lord, right? And right. so, 
early Christianity had to sort this out, and the way that the language we've used for that is, as you know, and as your listeners know, uh, is the Trinity. Uh, it's a way of talking about how uh, God is one God, but in three persons. Well, um, and, and I realize that that's a, a, a long conversation we could go down, but it's it's been one of the few things that all Christians pretty well right. across time have have affirmed. Now, it was puzzling to me how many of the Baptists and other nonconformists uh, began to depart from that doctrine. So, And one of the things I came to an understanding of, and this was in one of the chapters looking at the history of how, right. how they went from a belief in uh, one God and three persons to one God with a, uh, a son. Yeah, you talk uh, about the, the eternal subordination of the son, the ESS. Well, that's right. That's a, yeah. that's a current that's a current debate, uh, yeah, which ironically, is, among it, uh, evangelicals who have ironic is uh, a good word for it. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, it, that your listeners probably know about it, but it's it is if they don't, <laughs> yeah. it's a it is a um, a version of um, uh, evangelical theology that um, attaches a, a trinitarian understanding. Of of the son, not just in time economically, but eternally submitting to the father, uh, and so that that therefore is correlative with uh, yeah. women submitting to men yeah. and in subordinate relations. So I, you know, in some ways, I think it was a kind of social uh, vision right. needing have uh, greater theological anchoring. But but it's um, I mean theologically, it's it's problematic to say the least. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and for those, uh, you know, I, I mean, basically the Trinity needs to be, you need to have equality between all th- three aspects of the Trinity. And if right. you have one subordinating to the other eternally, then the equality is lost. Right. No, so I, I think that's, that's a, an odd thing. But, it, you know, yeah. the, the funny thing about it is in the 17th century, they had these same kinds of, not that particular argument, but right. where uh, it was... Uh, a kind of biblical understanding, a, mm-hmm. a very simple reading of the Bible that led them to, because there's, yeah, one of the things that is puzzling, was puzzling to me the first time I began to look at it, because the Trinity is such a, a, a uh, consensus kind of doctrine among Christians, right. and yet there is no one verse in the Bible that you can point to where it states the doctrine of the Trinity succinctly. Right. And I think because Baptists have been um, very Bible-oriented in their theology, they have had a difficulty trying to articulate a Trinitarian doctrine. So in some ways, the Biblicism of Baptists uh, kind of uh, against also a protest of mm-hmm. Roman Catholicism that said, well, we're not Catholics. Catholics are Trinitarians, so therefore we're not Trinitarians. Right. But that oftentimes led down that path. Which, and, and I appreciate the, near the, I actually, that was one of the couple of chapters I reviewed this morning, so I'm glad that you brought oh, cool. up the Trinity. Thank you for doing that and not bringing up the previous passage on, on, on yeah. liberalism and fundamentalism and moving beyond that. Uh, no, um, I appreciate how you started to bring the Cappadocians in, um, in mm-hmm. the end. And, and I think it does speak to this, you know, a reluctance to engage with both the Catholic aspect of our, of our identity and then also the Eastern Orthodox Right. We lose such good language of how to talk about the Trinity, and, and we try to reinvent the wheel, but we don't even have the, the, you know, the history of the language gives, you, right. gives everyone such tools to be able to talk about that. Right. No, it's a, and, and that's, 
I think it's um, part the, the Trinity, as I sometimes describe it, is just kind of a basic grammar of of talking about the basic convictions of like how do we how do we believe that the Lord our God is one, as I said, and mm-hmm. Jesus Lord. Right. Well, this Trinitarian grammar gives us a way of making those basic distinctions and without diminishing right. Jesus. Uh, uh, divinity, uh, or somehow dividing uh, God's, you know, the Father's divinity. So, yet, for some so, second. So it's surprising, though, that you don't advocate us returning to doing worship services in Greek. Because if no, we did them in Greek, that would probably help us clarify things that much more. <laughs> I have a colleague that probably would agree with you, but um, I do think it would. It might help. I, I'm a. I am a big believer. If you, if I were to turn my desk around here, look, I've, I've got a number of icons uh, out oh, okay. here. Um, you know, I, and and they, they, it's a wonderful way of kind of focusing the mind and the attention uh, in, on the images. Um, you know, Trinitarian, Christological, right. that, um, you know, just give you a visual image of, like, Trinitarian uh, life. So when so. you, uh, yeah, and that's, and for those who didn't get the joke, it's, in, in the, when they're, in Nicaea, when they're really arguing about how to talk about the Trinity, it's, as every seminarian student goes through that horrible in, um, history of Christianity where they're like homo oisian and homo oisian right. and like I don't homo yeah, yeah right thank you yeah see even I can't even pronounce it just right uh, and uh, but the but the it is such a uh, a beauty in the finesse of language how the Greek captures the difference right. um, that yeah. the English just can't but that's neither here nor there uh, I mean I love that you have this this um, this urging this sense of you know I, there's there has to be a bigger way or a different way let's look at our stories, let's look at our, our past. What do you do with your bias? Because, I mean, I hear that you had a bias yeah. in even going yeah, yeah, into yeah. the history. Yeah, I mean, so my bias in terms of, like, uh, where I started? Well, I, I am, I'm assuming that you wanted to get, that you started doing this project with a sense of, I want to be able to show a more ecumenical way. Oh, yeah, of, okay. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's one of the things, and I, and I do. You mentioned it. One of the early chapter, I guess it's the second chapter, isn't it? That I talk about trying to move beyond liberalism and fundamentalism. And, right. And in American Christianity, we've really been caught in in these binaries. Yeah, and we have. Our, our politics is in this now. You're either red or you're blue. You're liberal or conservative. You're, um, you know, you're you're, um, you know, this or that. And it's it it is. That kind of binary thinking, um, it's it's so divisive, and mm-hmm. there are aspects of uh, conservative evangelical tradition, the little orthodox tradition, that I think is really important that we need to retain. There are aspects of, like, what liberalism wasn't just rejecting all that. It was trying to say, let's find ways of renewing and talking about language. But to have to say it's either or, um, it seems to leave us, as as one American Baptist pastor used the language, with our windows being stuck either open or closed. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a good way to put sometimes it. Sometimes you need to be able to open the window, let in fresh air. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little too cold. You better shut the window. Right. Uh, but it needs to be functional. And so I, I do think that um, having a having a, 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 a current, modern, up-to-date, uh, open faith that is uh, embracing new ideas, for example, you know, I, I don't think that for, for uh, Christians today, 
we need to reject science. I, mm. I mean, I think that, you know, we've, if we don't somehow embrace empirical science as we uh, are able to measure climate change and all this, how can, how can we as Christians address uh, what we need to do and what we need to call uh, our leaders to do and how, how we can be faithful as churches uh, and, and being stewards of, of this. So, um, you know, that that's one place in which I would say that there are aspects of, of you know, this conservative evangelicalism that have just closed off and says it, it's either science or right. it's our faith. Um, so this third way, this way that is a kind of... Um, uh, a generous orthodoxy. Right. I think it's, a, 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 it's more of a stance um, mm-hmm. than it is actually a position. Um, almost a an attitude. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So um, you know, and I'm I'm in this place right now. Um, it, it our school is a United Methodist affiliated divinity school. Right. And it's been really painful for me to to see Methodist Church mm-hmm. um, driven by these cultural and theological oh, uh, yeah, yeah. forces that are just pulling apart. Um, uh, and, and I, I wish that there were a way for, for the church and our, our faith to be um, something that unifies, that brings us together uh, beyond um, the kinds of political divides and theological divides that we have. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a bit of the hope here. And yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting... Um, I mean, it, it, the, the, the dichotomy that we're forced into is something I wrestle with as well. You know, the pastoring a church where there is a good diversity of political and theological right. um, representation there. Um, and, and the place where I struggle with that uh, is um, when, when one side goes to a place where I, I can't find redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's say, you know, if, if one, you know, let's take um, stuff that's been happening on the border, locking kids in cages, you know, right. that kind of thing. And, and you'll hear evangelical conservatives saying, no, no, this is, we just need to do this. It's, and, and that, as a Christian, I cannot find the space. Right. And, and, and what maddens me is that I feel like, yeah, that further, that adds to that divide. I wonder, though, in, in considering your idea about you know looking at history and such, um, if we look at if we look at the history of Christianity and we do find moments when there um, needed to be a divide, um, when there needed to be when some were when some Christians were going in a place that was just so wrong or so heinous that others mm-hmm. had to stand up and say no, this is not okay by any yeah, stretch yeah. of the imagination. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of another example besides you know 1930s, 1940s. Yeah, and I'm sure there's one there because I don't want to just go right to that almost cliche well, example. Well, let me go to an earlier. Let me go Good, to an earlier. Please one. help me out yeah. with that. Well, I mean, so our our Baptist family uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. like the Methodists, like the Presbyterians, divided during the Civil War. Right, and, right. And so um, the the Presbyterians and the Methodists have found a way to unite. the The Northern and Southern Baptists, the American and Southern right. Baptists have not ever found a way to unite uh, again um, and it 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 was it's worse than that because it's not just the american and the southern baptist it also uh, it, it it we fragmented 
the Baptists between black and white Baptists so that yeah. we have at least four major groups of um, national Baptists, African-American affiliated, uh, I mean, groups that are right. uh, predominantly African-American. And, and our churches are segregated. And so there's something um, about how that crisis of America uh, during the, the mid-19th century, early 19th century, um, that got us locked into ideologies of uh, race that still are with us today. Right. And I, I know that, you know, having a lot of students here that um, are African-American, that, um, you know, they, they being in those spaces, hearing sermons, listening to prayers, listening to testimonies, I just realized that the, the kinds of things that deeply divided us 200 years ago mm-hmm. are still with us. And, uh, and yeah. isn't that, though, a, I, I wonder if that was a division that needed to happen. That, I mean, the 1845 Southern, South, North Baptist split. Yeah. If, if that was actually the, I mean, and, and um, you know, I just did some studying and writing on Francis Wayland. And I was trying to, I was trying to protect him. I was, I wanted to get to a place where I could say Waylon yeah. did the best he could, and I yeah. got to a place where actually I said, no, I don't, I don't think he did. I think he kind of missed it, because yeah. he still had a, deg- he had a, a, a negative view towards African Americans. Well, and, it, and that happened in the North as well. Oh as in yeah, South. well, I mean, Wayland was in Providence, right. I mean, yeah, at Brown University, um, right. you know. But to say because the Southerns, the Baptists from the South, were not going to budge for the most part, on say, no, slavery is going to be okay, then maybe that separation should have, I mean, was the right thing to do. Well, I mean, I th- certainly you're talking about the division in 1845 that yeah. led the founding of the Southern Baptists. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the hope the hope that we could have is that, that somehow we, we might be able to actually name what that is that continues to divide us. And it's it, you know, one of the things that um, I, I've become aware of, this moving a little far afield of the book, but it, it's I'll still... I'll bring us back, don't worry. <laughs> that that um, among evangelicals, that when we, when we talk about race, that it's always or predominantly in terms of personal relationships. So, like, hmm. you, you think of, like... I understand race as the relationships that I have between my white friends or my black friends. Right. Now, the um, liberals tend to think of this uh, in more structural terms, right? Right, right. And um, so it, the reality is it's both. It's both about friendships. It's about yep. relationships. It's about structural realities. And and so that is part of what hasn't, hasn't really happened is that we haven't been able to address among— Baptist in the South, black and white, what structural changes would need to happen? What kinds of personal relationships would right. need to be changed so that our, our churches could begin to see, our congregations could see ourselves as a part, maybe not of one congregation or even one denomination, but of one church? Do you do you think— That would be the—to get back to the book, that right. would be the, the hope that, that somehow a sense that we share in the one holy Catholic— Apostolic Church, right. and that's what is at stake. That our racial division really gives lie to the truth that that God is about creating a people here on earth. That is the um, uh, that is that is the beginning, the signs, the foretaste of uh, the kingdom uh, right. that is eternity. Um, 
you gave me a great thought. But do, do you think that, that maybe Augustine's wrestling with, you know, the post, the Diocletian persecutions, um, the post-persecutions where he came up with, the, you know, the great phrase, the church is mm-hmm. a mixture of sinners and saints. And, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he oh, took about, mix, yeah. yeah, and then he took like, like 500 pages to explain what he meant by that. Um, but, I mean, is that a place, if, you know, going back to the sense of ressourcement, which I, you, yeah. you, I, I love how you embrace that. Um, without, I love how you embraced it without giving all the credit to the Second Vatican Council. I really appreciate <laughs> that to say it's not just theirs. We <laughs> can also, um, but this reclaiming of source that that might be a way in which we could say, and to, to say we've got to do some really hard, deep thinking of trying to yeah. figure out how to br- bridge the divides that have been that have been created and growing that might call for a radical theological shift. Cause I, that's part of what was happening with Augustine. He was pushing for this radical theological shift and what it meant to be a Christian and a part of a church. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's always the, the paradox is that every, you know, the, the old saying is, is that, you know, there's not a perfect church. And if there was one, then I couldn't get into it. And right. then if I did somehow get into it, it wouldn't be perfect any longer. Right. Um, Augustine That's... is recognizing that you, you know, the church is a mixture of saints and sinners. Right. Now the church as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as it will be in eternity, will be, you know, without spot or wrinkle. Uh, it will be pure. Right. But in, in historical existence, the congregation that you serve, the people that you serve, um, there are wonderful people there. There are saints. There are righteous people there. There are also people that are some of the most troubled and complicated mm-hmm. folks you've ever, you ever could meet. Right. Uh, and, they're, and they're there. And somehow you find yourself called to be able to see that this people can also be the body of Christ. Now, that, that happens to be something that, that I, I think I've learned that I, I have a little bit of tension with some of the Catholic understandings. I, I, I actually probably are, uh, am more in agreement with some of the theologians um, uh, that would say that, yes, and, and Augustine being one, mm. that the church can sin uh, in historical existence and somehow coming to terms with that. Mm-hmm. If you, I don't mean to cast aspersion only on Catholics because we Baptists oh, yeah. look at this whole question of the Me Too about um, sexual harassment and abuse in the church. It is it is a an ecumenical offense. Right. But but being able to recognize that the church has been complicit in that. Right. Uh, the church has been complicit in race. The church was complicit in the 1930s mm. in the National Socialist um, right. situation. So, um, and being able to, to say uh, to one another, what would it take for us to come to terms honestly to name that mm. and uh, to, to repent of it and uh, to even imagine what reconciliation might look like? Yeah, I think that's a good, yeah, that, I think that's an important question. And Part of what I, what I hear you moving towards is also to say, in, in this returning to this idea that there, we are still under one holy apostolic church, however that's understood, that we need to move beyond this place where we say we're going to agree to disagree and walk our, go our separate ways. 
Right. Yeah, and that's really, really important. If I could and say I, I began by talking about chapter nine on baptism, um, and I, as 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 you know, you, have the, you don't you do have the book open right now. You don't have your chapters t- memorized, do you? I do have the book open. Yeah, if you oh, want. Oh, good. No, I just wanted to make sure that you did like chapter nine baptism. Chapter ten is. Oh well, no, I do know where where chapters <laughs> are. And I, I mean, recently. That's uh, a, that's really I, impressive, Curtis. That that is that, that's impressive. No, uh, I spent a lot of time with this book. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the last 15 years, I've been very engaged with the Baptist World Alliance and mm-hmm. ecumenical dialogues, first with the Anglican World Communion, then with the um, uh, Rome, Roman Catholic uh, Pontifical Council for promoting Christian unity, right. and then finally with the World Methodist Council. And one of the things, all three of these bodies uh, baptize differently than we do. So one of the things I do in Chapter 9 to try to say, how can we affirm this one holy Catholic apostolic church to say that we Baptists are not saying to Catholics, uh, unless you are immersed as an adult, you're not in the church. You're not truly a follower of Christ. Your churches aren't. And Baptists have sometimes said that. Uh, Sometimes still do. Sometimes they still do. So (laughs) one of the things that I do in the book, and I've learned this through the ecumenical dialogues, is to imagine uh, that infant baptism and believer baptism are, are, are the, the, the way that's unhelpful for me thinking about it is to think that these are uh, just decisive events, uh, moments that happen, mm-hmm. and, and uh, rather to put them in a context of a process, right. to think about what it means to make Christians, to become Christians, uh, to be fully immersed into Christ, which only happens finally at our death, doesn't it? Right. When we're fully buried into Christ's death and raised up uh, in the in the into, into eternal life, and and so that that process, I can imagine how infant baptism uh, actually makes disciples, leads people into the full embrace of mm-hmm. being a follower of Jesus Christ, and and I try to name that, and so in such and, and so what that means uh, for for me is is a way of saying that if a Methodist comes or a Presbyterian to my Baptist congregation um, that I'm a member of, we don't ask that person to be re-immersed right. or to be immersed. We simply ask them, have they been baptized? And we ask for their confession of faith. Right. Um, and, and so we make a discernment that that process of baptism and discipleship um, is significant enough to where we see those as equivalent processes. Now, I, I know for some people that doesn't work, but for me, that that was a, a startling awakening that um, uh, we don't—and we, so that, that yeah. really gives us an opportunity to say that uh, the Methodists, the Congregationalists, the others, uh, churches in our neighborhoods are not competitors, but that we are—we're partners in God's mission in the world. And uh, this is, carrying out that great commission. Yeah, and, and uh, just to give even more context to that, there are people in the congregation I'm serving now who remember when, and this is a this is a Rhode Island, New England. It's not a right. it's not a progressive right. church, but it's leaning that way. I mean, it's right. it, you know, they remember when it was expected that if you joined the church and you were come from a different tradition, you would have to be baptized. Right. So it's not that long ago. On the other hand, the the First Baptist Church of Swansea, Mass. is you right. and I both know it's a historic right. church. Um, by the second or third pastor, they had open communion at the table, right. or open table um, communion, which, so right. they weren't accepting all baptisms, but they were saying, 
if you were we baptized in other traditions, you. you're welcome yep. at the table, which right. is, you know, and, and they, they went back and forth with closed table, open table. Right. You know, as, as we all have. So, I mean, that, that tension has been, been there, but I, I hear this moving, this movement more towards let's really recognize the validity of other baptisms. Uh, I mean, when I, and I've done rebaptisms, I put that in quotes so the listeners can't see it, uh, because I do think it's theologically offensive to rebaptize someone to all those others who were baptized in their original tradition. Right. Um, but what I do is I say, remember your, your baptism as you reclaim those vows mm-hmm. that were made on your behalf. And Yeah, that's, that's one way of, of trying to do it and to say that you're not undoing everything that has been done, right. but you are completing and continuing. Right, what, and saying that was valid. What was done when you were an infant was valid, and you're just remembering it in a way, in an amnetic amnetic way, um, which is powerful. This, I mean, this gets us to move into the, the kind of the part of your book that I really dug. I mean, I, I like the whole book. I'm not okay. going to say, like, I read it, and I was like, uh, I, I especially liked, um, you know, someone from, you know, the North, the Carlisle Marnie um, yeah. bits, it's just anything about um, Baptists in the South, because our history tends to be somewhat chauvinistic. And I learned about American Baptist and Northern Baptist and really just don't have the stories of the Baptist experience in the South. So that was really helpful for me. Cool. Um, but then we get to the sacramentality part, uh, which, as you know, that's I, I, I eat that stuff up. I love that stuff. You're you're singing right. my song there. Um you know, but I, I, what I hear in that, and, and for our listeners, it, what, what Curtis is trying to do is to help Baptists to realize there, there very well could be more happening at the Lord's Supper than just eating bread and drinking juice. Right. Um, what I or, hear, in the, or in the water, that the Spirit is actually acting through these material means. Yeah. Or in the, in the words that we preach, that, that the Spirit can actually inhabit these words and they can become God's words. Right. Yeah. So, so just to be saying, there can be a sacramentality right. to being Baptist. I don't remember if you used the word sacramentality or not. Probably I did somewhere, but yeah, yeah I mean, I, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good word, as long as we don't have to define it. <laughs> <laughs> well, another way of talking about it is that I, that I like is, um, and it's, a, it's out of the Reformed tradition that mm-hmm. Baptists come from, uh, is to talk about these as means of grace, hmm. that, that actually, um, that, that the the, the 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 proclamation of the gospel, the preaching, right. can't be a means of grace because God can take the Holy Spirit can take our words and can make them God's word in such a way that they bring about uh, the the change of people's hearts and minds, uh, so they can be converted. Uh, as as the Apostle Paul says, that through the foolishness of preaching, uh, God right. has chosen you know, uh, to, to, to convert those who believe. Well, um, that's amazing. That's it. And, and, and it's not our words that we're just convincing. It's somehow that our words be, become lifted up and, and they become, uh, God's word, a means of right. God's grace. And so that bread and wine can do that, that, um, that we could, uh, and they, they've been, uh, commanded to do this, that water can, can be this, that God can use this can inhabit to, right. to change or uh, by one spirit we are baptized into one body um, See, I, I would push back a little bit and say it's not it's still not the bread and the wine but it's the act of the community gathering around the table and having and taking the bread and, and the wine and, and participating it's, it's the, the participatory nature of the ritual itself that becomes right. the means of grace well, for me well what what you're what you're 
what you're drawing on there, and it's one thing I do in the book. I had a one of my former teachers who who um, um, later ended up at um, he was American Baptist uh, in the latter part of his life, and then Mennonite. Uh, but he he was a Zwingli scholar. I talk about uh, his his work here, and what and the way you described. Uh, the covenant meal is mm. the way that Zwingli talks about a kind of trans, transubstantiation of the community. So the community, right. through the sharing of this meal, becomes the body of Christ. And I would say the same for the water, for the baptism. But I would agree that if you, if you just do a baptism without the water, then it doesn't have the same import. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the same power. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it would lose its... I mean, I've done a couple of outdoor baptisms at our church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a fine baptismal. And it's it's much easier to do it there, but people find that significance in saying, "I want to be outside. I want to do it in in the pond or in the river," um, because just that adds that much more to the ritual, to the power itself. So I don't mean to take away from the, right. the elements. Um, no, I, I love I love the the drama of immersion because I mean I mean this is the way that the Apostle Paul talks about it that you were buried with him in right. uh, to his death. Uh, So that that actual, it's like a grave that we're lowered into and that when we're raised out of that water, we're raised into new life. But I, you know, I, I, I read, and this is another place I think I, I I don't think that the Didache uh, belongs to, you know, early Catholics or Orthodox. It's a document that we should read. So, you know, the Didache talks about you know how well if you baptize, you should baptize in living water out in the mm. stream like that. But if you don't have living water, then you go to still water. Uh, you should right. baptize in cold water. But if you don't have it, you know I guess cold because you need to really know that it's <laughs> it's like a shocking reality. Uh, but if you don't have cold water, you can do it in in warm water. Um, and if you you know if you you get a sense that right. baptism is. A universal uh, uh, way of entry into the Christian faith, into the church, but the ways in which you can do that and dramatize it and and enact it uh, right. be varied. So I, I mean, as long as you don't go crazy. It, yeah. It, well, I mean, this is so when you talk about the the, the preaching, the sacramentality of preaching. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I I love it, and and um, I think it, I I love it if if the preacher has a has humility. Uh, so it doesn't mean that your words are automatically God's words, right? So there's not it's not ex opere operato that, and and um, so I, this is one thing again. I, I think that that our sense of sacramentality does come out of a more reformed tradition that says we we can meet God here at this table or in this baptismal font or even here. Uh, underneath this pulpit, but not because the preacher is a rhetorically gifted person, right. or because this liturgy is is the liturgy that you know has always been. It's because God has promised to be here. I was waiting for so that, that word. We come yeah. meet the presence that uh, that has been promised. Right. So, yeah. And and I, and I think the the preaching works if, as long as it's clear that. It comes out of the relational nature between the preacher and the congregation. That I think that's a, that certainly is a part of it, and um, yeah, I, you know, my, one of the other heroes of the book is a is a guy that actually was pastor of the church I'm a member of, named Warren Carr, mm-hmm. uh, and he he had been American. He grew up in Kentucky, but then he went to West 
Virginia, was American Baptist pastor, came to our church, which is American Baptist. And um, he was a wonderful preacher, and there was a very wealthy man in the church. And this was during the 1940s and 50s, when we're in the South and Durham, right. North Carolina, race right. It's really a struggle. And when he would, uh, this guy was the guy that invented, um, well, I shouldn't say what company, but he invented okay. a very famous kind of uh, headache remedy that he made a lot of money. Very okay. wealthy man, generous, but uh, he was not open on the question of uh, desegregation. Mm. And so when Warren Carr would preach on that, uh, the man would write his check but when he would hear the sermon, he would tear it up ritually oh, like this oh, uh, because the offering came after the sermon. Oh, man. But then, but then, when, but then on Monday, he would come down to—he several times came down to church to give his offering because he realized that the pastor had been to the jail the night before to get his own son out. The, the rich oh, man. Oh, the rich man. Right. So it, it, it underscores that that uh, the thing that you said, uh, this relationship between uh, pastor and the congregation. So you right. can be prophetically uh, uh, a prophetic preacher if you're also a priestly pastor. Yeah. Well, and my, my worry is that you get these um, megalomaniac pastors. Yeah, I mean, I was just saw on Facebook today. Um, I don't remember the woman's name, but she's like the head of the faith initiative now at the White House. Paula something. Oh yeah, yeah Paula White. Yeah. Paula White, and she was yeah, saying, yeah. and and, I, and the, it was out of context, so I don't know the whole sermon that she was preaching, but she was basically saying, "Where I walk is holy ground. Yeah. Um, what I say is holy." And 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 I I I get where she might be coming from, where God says, "I'll be with you always," so that wherever I am, then therefore that's but. Yeah. Or the, touch not the Lord's anointed. I've heard that. You yeah, know? something like yeah, and and okay, I get that. But the the way it was being phrased, the way it was being presented, became all about the personality, right? And and maybe her congregation would say, yeah, we're with you on that. We want you to carry that kind of mantle. I don't know, yeah. um, but that's the worry I have when we do put this emphasis. And I wrestle with this myself. You know, I'm Baptist. I preach for a living. That's the the apex of my of my week. Um, and you know that the to say that a sermon is is a can be a very profound and, and powerful thing. But if I don't have a humility in my heart, um, it can become more about me than about the word proclaimed. Right, I, I get that, but I always I always remind the students that I have that where what other job could you have that once a week people are going to show up and for twenty or thirty minutes, whatever however long you preach, right. they let you preach. Some some, some Baptists preach longer than that. Job. I know, I know, I know. I, I won't push my people that far. But you know, people are going to show up and they're going to listen to you if if they recognize that somehow God is speaking through what you say. Yeah. And they will they will sit there and and sometimes they won't like what you say, but they will listen to it. And that that's an amazing gift. Right. And and a and a wonderful responsibility and opportunity that we have as ministers. But yeah, and I, I think yeah, I guess I you know, I so that to say that something bigger is happening than me just standing up there and trying to wax poetic Right. Um, and offer just clever turns of phrase or to show how smart I am. Something, And that's not what I do for sermons, of course. I'm a great preacher. I don't do that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You'd have to ask my, my folks. Um, but to say something greater is happening, but that's because of God's presence. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it is a part of the whole of the worship as well. 
Um, I think that is that is powerful and beautiful. And that's probably what then can draw us to look towards, like you do, the Greek icons. You know, once we start to have the sense that God does stuff bigger than what we can see, we can now look at other traditions and see. Right. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. I'm, I'm right now, um, my own son, who is a, is a teenager, hasn't been baptized. And we've had, mm. been having this conversation for several years. And so what I've, what I've decided to do and started to do is to write a series of letters that are more kind of like chapters uh, about, um, and you may know this from Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about there are these uh, six principles of oh, yeah. Uh, repentance and faith and baptism and laying on of hands and so forth. There's six of these principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I'm writing him a letter on each one of these, which is basically um, a, a kind of teaching about not just what it means to be baptized, but what does it mean to be a Christian mm, and yeah. how to live as a Christian. So it's, um, I, I think that that's, that's something that we, we all ought to, uh, to take in, in consideration, that it's not, it's not just about baptism, it's not just about getting people to be members of the church, but somehow it, it is really about, well, what does it mean to fully participate uh, in this life of Christ? Um, so, yeah. you know, so, yeah. So what I hear you saying is that we should all be six principal Baptists. Well, uh, I think the six principles are a wonderful way, you know, and, and that's the reason I, and for your listeners might, yeah. might not know this, is that um, six principal Baptists were a kind of general Baptist that, right. that Island had a good number of, and still around, but uh, the six principal uh, confession, uh, which was widely used, mm-hmm. uh, my favorite one uh, that I've used uh, is, is from, um, it was called St. Paul's Catechism. Uh, Thomas Grantham wrote it for his okay. son, so it was oh. a conversation. So, nice. but there's but there's lots of others of these uh, of these different six principles. I could drag them out. I've got a stack of catechisms <laughs> this high. But the the, the the bigger thing is I'm drawing on the again the ancient tradition, right? Uh, catechesis, uh, right. but also trying to think about like um, well, this this doesn't just belong to the Baptist. So I need to be able to talk about the whole Christian tradition. Right. Uh, so, well, anyway. That, and that, I know we're, we're getting close to time, but that, that kind of moves it to one of the broader questions that I have, because I, I do, I really did enjoy your book. And while I was reading it... Well, thanks a lot. Um, I, you know, someone who was been new to the church and new to the Baptist life, came from the congregationalist life, was saying, <laughs> like, how do you explain Baptist? And, and because I was in the thick of your book, I said, you should really check out this book. I said, it really, huh. it really gets to... Baptist life in, in a different way. Um, usually mm-hmm. I, I send people to Everett Goodwin's book, um, Down by the River. Oh, yeah, right. Which is a good, you know... A summary. Yeah, yeah a summary of Baptist life, and that's good. Or you know, I, I, you know, as much as I love Bill Leonard's Baptist Ways, I don't send people there because it's encyclopedic. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. Has, it tells everything. But it, yeah. Everett's, Everett's book tells the story in a simple way. I yeah. think it's, it's a great little summary. It really is, but I was, because of your, your influence um, of, of your book. But who were, when you wrote this book, who were, you, who were you writing it for? Oh, yeah, so that's a really good question. I, uh, part of it as I was writing it, because I was, I was trying to, to, to narrate this whole Christian tradition that my students were getting here. So I, okay. I love that at Duke, you know, the very first semester, they take a church history class where they start with, you know, the apostolic fathers and mothers mm. and desert fathers and mothers and work through the, you know, uh, the fourth and fifth century, the Cappadocians and all that uh, up to the Reformation. And, and you know, 
that so what do you do with that as a Baptist or, or do you just yeah. jump to the, you know, the 17th century and forget right. all of this? So finding a way to say, no, all of this is God's storehouse. Right. Uh, this, is, this belongs to the church. It belongs to us. And so the, the, the generous orthodoxy uh, is a way of saying to my students, this is a way where you can make sense of the tradition, the education that you're getting here. But, you know, I guess the wider audience would be for, you know, pastors, others mm. like yourself um, that want, that have an ecumenical commitment, but also a, um, a historical uh, connection to the church. And you, you want to, and, and you have an open mind to the future. Right. Um, and you want to put all that together. So I, those were the kinds of people that I was hoping might be listening so I'm sorry that um, Judson Press didn't pick it as their book for Baptist Reads for the year. Uh, maybe because it's printed, I mean, it's published through Baylor. That's part of the reason why. But Judson picks a book every year that they really try to get the whole denomination to read. That would have yeah. been, been great. But Well, I, 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 I still have a plan to do something with Judson because okay. we've we got a lot of friends there. Yeah, uh, that's it's right. A, it's a great press. It's a great press. It is. It is. It's a good press. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think pastors definitely should read this book. Um, especially, I would really recommend if you've been out of seminary for 15 years or longer, um, which means you're probably getting into a kind of mechanical routine by now, and you're just doing things, you're going through the motions, and it's been a while since you took your Baptist history and polity course, and, and, and you can spout out the distinctions without even thinking about them, it's time for you to read this book. Yeah. Because uh, it, it is kind of a, a reawakening uh, for those who Thanks. haven't been keeping up with their own studies. So I'd really recommend Thanks. it for that, for them. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Jonathan. Yeah. Now, you've written another book since then. Do you want to give it a brief plug? Oh, uh, well, uh, we can do that. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a, another one, actually a couple right now, but the one that I did finish, uh, uh, it's been about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, is called Undomesticated Descent. And it's it's a book that if if contesting Catholicity is trying to say, how can we have a continuity with the whole church, the Catholic Church? Undomesticated descent recognizes that in our free church, Baptistic tradition, there are times in which um, we have had to hold up a sense of we have to be different. We have to maintain a sense of religious liberty and conviction, uh, separation of church and state, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I, I tell that story uh, largely through three graves in a cemetery uh, in London, oh, but, cool. but the graves of John Bunyan, mm -hmm. uh, John, John Bunyan, uh, Daniel Defoe, and um, uh, William Blake, and, and tell it kind of a literary historical uh, narration of that. But yeah, so, and so maybe they'll pick that up. Yeah, and sounds like that. that's your volume two of, of, of Freeman's Theology. Well, it's a you know you 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 mentioned it and other people have said that that um, I was I was greatly influenced by uh, a a Baptist uh, a theologian scholar uh, James McClendon that you know and yeah. you read oh, yeah. work yeah a bit and and one of the ways that he influenced me was uh, his emphasis on narrative yep uh, and telling life stories and so I I have tried to maintain so that's why people like uh, you know Warren Carr mm -hmm. uh, Carl. Arnie, uh, Blake Smith, and these were sort of these other Baptists that um, they were Southerners, um, as you've rightly pointed right. out, but but they were the kinds of Southerners 
that weren't the sort of Southerners that you, that you and others look at and go, oh. Yeah, right. <laughs> not so these those are... kind of people. Right. That's not our kind of folks. Yeah, so yeah. I'm waiting for – so maybe your third volume will be on um, something like uh, um, Cranky Cantankerous but Still Together uh-huh. uh, and, and you could do well, – uh, Actually, the, the book that I'm working on right now, I got about half halfway done, um, is, is called um, um, uh, Uncivil Religion. Is America losing its soul? Oh. And so I'm, I'm spending a good, good bit of time uh, starting out with some of them are Baptist influences like mm-hmm. Roger Williams and others, but looking at the soul of America uh, and how this soul has been at the heart. There's a kind of creedal or confessional sense of it that all people are created equal, endowed by creator, their creator right. with inalienable rights. Now, that's aspirational. We're trying to live into it, that the soul right. is is uh, trying to embrace uh, people to come to this place. Uh, and I'm, I'm concerned that, as you pointed out earlier about the immigration and other uh, ways in which the soul is sort of closing in. Mm. And, yeah. and we, we seem to be losing our sense of conscience, openness. Uh, to people that are different than us. So I, I hope that you bring in, uh, there's two Southerners that you haven't mentioned yet that I'm kind of shocked. Um, Will Campbell. And, and Flannery O'Connor. No, not Flannery. <laughs> oh, Flannery O'Connor would be great. No, uh, Clarence Jurgen. Uh, oh, well, Clarence Jordan is, yeah, both of both of them. Actually, Will Campbell is in this book just a little bit. Oh, okay. And Sorry, that I missed Clarence that. Clarence Jordan is in the last chapter in a big way uh, in Undomesticated Sound. Oh, good. Yeah, He's yeah, a he's, personal hero of mine. I, yeah, didn't, no, I, I didn't meet him, but he, yeah. Yeah, um, he's great. One of Farms and all yeah. that. Habitat for Humanity was yeah. the child of, of uh, Koinonia. Yeah, it's a great place. So, um, all right. So, folks, I do encourage you to go out to your bookstore, and uh, you're not going to find the book um, at your local bookstore because it's just not that kind of book. But you ask them to order it. You tell them order Contesting Catholicity by Curtis Freeman, Theology for Other Baptists, Baylor Press, what year did it come oh, out? You, yeah, you can just write up Baylor Press and. Uh, oh yeah, they'll send I, it to you. I, yeah, you can get a you can get a discount. I bet if you just ask them. Oh yeah. Tell them you listen to the podcast. Yeah, tell them you heard the podcast, and they'll say what podcast. But you never know. <laughs> Curtis, thanks. Uh, tell me about the what church do you, do you go to? Watch Street Baptist Church, which is uh, an American Baptist Church of the South. Okay. Uh, so we we joined when that. Uh, when that group, that region was formed, 1967, I think. That sounds about uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So um, we were one of the founding uh, congregations of Fantastic. that. Fantastic. And what time is worship there? 11 o'clock. So if you're, if, if you're in Chapel Hill, right, that's where you are? Dur- Durham, North Carolina. Oh, Durham. Sorry. If you're in Durham, that's the other North Carolina school. school. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm a northerner. It's all the same. Um, if you're in Durham, go to Watch Hill Baptist Church at 11 o'clock. And uh, yeah, Watch Street Baptist. Watch Street. It's on eight, 800 Watch Street. It's right across the street, essentially one block over from East Campus of Duke University. Oh, fantastic. You hear some fine, fine preaching. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, go on the first of the month and have, uh, have uh, Lord's Supper. Maybe you'll see Curtis, maybe not, but that's not why you go. You go for the worship. Right. Um, and if you want to meet Curtis... You know, you got to enroll as a student at Duke. That's all you. It's, oh, it's, no, you just just show up sometime. We'd love, up. Any, we'd love to have you come. We'd love to have you. Come. <laughs> well, I'm just, waiting. I'm waiting for that invitation. All right. <laughs> all right. Have to work on that. Yes. Thank you, Curtis. Thank uh, you, Jonathan. 
thus ends the episode, or at least that part of the episode. You know, the episode where I was talking to Curtis Freeman. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun reading Curtis's book, and I had a lot of fun talking to Curtis about his book. I recommend you read the book, uh, especially if you're Baptist. If you're not Baptist, read it anyways. doesn't hurt to read. You could read a little bit more. You look tired. Go read a book. It'd really help. Uh, if you want to send an email uh, comment about this show, if you have thoughts, if you have thoughts, I want to hear your thoughts, or anything else of that nature, you can send all your emails to 12enough at gmail.com. And 12 is written out. And I read all of your emails. So go ahead and send them, no matter how small you may think it is. I really appreciate it. Uh, make sure to like the show on iTunes, rate the show, like the show, give me as many stars as you want. And comments are always really nice. They really help out a lot. I appreciate your comments. Uh, go to Facebook. Uh, follow me on the Facebooks. That's Facebook slash 12 Enough. You can follow me on Twitter at Pastor Malone. It's not 12 Enough. I don't know why. I do know why, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but you can do that there as well. Uh, and as always, thank you very much for listening. 12 Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Curtis Freeman is the research professor of theology and the director of the Baptist House of Studies at Duke Divinity School at Duke University. The thoughts, ideas, opinions, moments of brilliance, ruminations, moments of wondering, moments of confusion moments in general and anything else that is said on this podcast do not represent the hosts, families, friends, places of employment, denominations, churches, states, countries, continents, or planets, or anything else of that nature. These are their own ideas. This is their podcast. <laughs>